Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Keeping It PG, uh, where our goal is pretty simple, interesting conversations with interesting people. And when I think about the most interesting people I know, not just in Cincinnati, but really anywhere, Rob McDonald certainly springs to mind. He is a partner at the Taft Law Firm by day, but that's before he goes and puts on his superhero cape, at which point he morphs into a startup guru with an impressive national reputation, including founding the successful accelerator, The Brandery. He has lived all over the world. He has a pretty fascinating family also, and I always look forward to hearing what he's thinking about and also what he's up to next. So it is my pleasure to welcome today to keep it at PG, Rob McDonald. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, PG. Glad to be here. So uh, first of all, I guess your upbringing, not like, you know, I, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I stayed in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm back in Cincinnati, Ohio. You grew up all over the world. I guess sort of talk to people about um, how that circumstance came to be and in what ways it was formative and what were some of the various stops along the way? Sure. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to kind of grow up all over, um, largely in Japan and Belgium and the Philippines. Um, we left Cincinnati before I was in kindergarten and uh, traversed the world because my father was working for Procter & Gamble. Um, it was a great experience for me. It's all I knew. So I was going to ask, did yeah. you know, living in Japan and the Philippines, like this isn't how most American two-year-olds and six-year-olds <laughs> are living? Yeah, I guess we kind of figured it out when we got a little older. Um, it, was, it was a little interesting because we were living in Canada, for example, at one point, and I got really into ice hockey. And then my parents decided um, that they were going to accept this new role with P&G in, in the Philippines. So my first question was like, well, how's the ice hockey league? You know, it's like... <laughs> Uh, it's course, not the most snow. robust. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so you, you learn to kind of adapt and into the whatever the national sport is, and um, and you find different interests and find different hobbies and new friends. And so yeah, I really enjoyed it and didn't know any better, but it was a wonderful experience. I picture a little bit the scene from Mean Girls, which I've only watched once, but where Lindsay Lohan comes and you know she's this like normal looking sort of white girl, and right. people like didn't know that she lived in Africa for the last ten years. Or in, in what ways was it most Formative, I guess, would you say? Yeah, I think that's a, actually a pretty accurate like <laughs> description of what my experience was like. Every new school you went to, you'd hop in the lunchroom and kind of see what tables were available to sit at, um, or where whether or not there were any people in that lunchroom that looked like you. Um, so most of the schools we went to, they're international schools, so they had you know tons of different nationalities right. and tons of different races, tons of different religions. So the way that it formed me is it made me really adaptable, right. um, maybe understand other cultures, um, help me uh, be able to interact with people from all over the world in, in ways that I might not have been been able to if I lived right. here in the U.S. Um, and it helps you communicate, too, because a lot of the people, you don't speak the language. You know, When we first moved to Japan, it took me a long time to learn enough Japanese to get around. So learn to communicate with very little language and reading people. I would say now that your Japanese probably exceeds the Japanese of almost everyone you interact with on a, on a daily basis, right? Shockingly, there's a really nice Japanese population here in town. Because of Toyota? Because or? of Toyota <laughs> and, uh, and some of the other car part manufacturers. Right. So um, we've got some great Japanese food here in town. And um, I haven't used my Japanese in like 15 years, so you, you, I don't. You and me both, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't tell people I know Japanese anymore. It's too, it's too risky. <laughs> any, any other sort of, like, skills or habits? I mean, are, can you cook, like, exquisite, you know, 
food from the Philippines, or are you like a karate master, or any other oh, gosh. I superhero wish. skills you're hiding as a function of having lived all over the place? I wish. I didn't, you know, I really didn't pick up anything like unique. I focused pretty much on the stuff we focused on right. here in the U.S., so I played baseball in, the, in Japan, which was, you know, baseball culture Big. in Japan is yeah, huge. Yeah. Uh, played soccer in the Philippines, ice hockey in Canada, and um, so nothing like too unique, but I think the one thing that growing up abroad really helped me with is just like sense of direction and right. where I'm supposed to be when. Um, I, I never feel like I'm lost. Right. Anything weird about when you did finally come back to the States? And t- did I read somewhere that you didn't go to a school in the States until you were in high school? That's, oh, I didn't go to school in the States until college. Until college? Yeah. So right. what, what did you get to college? You went to Duke for, right. for undergraduate. Were yeah. you like... Was it was it foreign or was it you know easy to slip into? Oh, it was totally bizarre. Yeah. Right. Um, so that was in no- Duke's in North Carolina, and at the time, it, that area of North Carolina, Raleigh Durham, had not quite been built up the way it is now. So when I got there, I was like, well, you know, where's the Japanese restaurant? And so they sent me to Panda Express. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, not exactly what I had in mind, but there was a little bit of a culture shock and it, it, you know some adaptation that was required once once uh, I got there. I was actually in this Asian Student Association because I had come from Japan, so I guess Duke automatically put me in the Asian Student <laughs> Association. Eventually, I stopped getting the emails. Out. Were the other like, students like, um, yeah. is there something you're not telling us? <laughs> exactly. So my Lindsay Lohan mean girl, for folks that haven't, uh, you know, I've, I'll post a uh, YouTube with the show notes or something of the scene where Lindsay Lohan's the new student, and people would not have guessed that she was coming from where she was coming from. That's, I mean, it's dead on. I never knew you guys were yeah. such kindred spirits in that way. Yeah, you okay. know, me and Lindsay. <laughs> so you, you're back to the States. You've lived all over the world. Uh, you graduate from Duke. How'd you decide to, to go the law route? Yeah, I, I took a couple uh, meandering turns, spent some time in New York in advertising for a firm called TBWA. We did the advertising for Skittles and Starburst, and Apple was our big client at the time. And um, it was a really difficult job. You know, you don't get paid much in that role. And I was always calling our lawyers trying to get, you know, permission to do things. And they always told me no. You know, I'd call and they say, no, we can't do that. Right. No, we can't do that. And I was like, God, this is an easy job. You know, I should become <laughs> a lawyer. Master one word. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and I was like, and we're paying them a lot of money to tell us <laughs> no. Um, so I, I went to law school at WashU in St. Louis. And I had deferred admission because I applied when I was an undergrad. And um, luckily, you know, hopped over there. And, and law school was a tough experience, too. It was in St. Louis. And I thought, you know, everybody had said St. Louis is going to be like Cincinnati. I'd grown, grown really fond of Cincinnati. My experiences, they weren't that similar. Right. Um, and maybe partly because I was stuck in the library the whole time. Right. Um, but then uh, tried a couple other cities in between, you know, clerked at, with a firm in Chicago, um, spent some time with the Securities and Exchange Commission in D.C., um, and then eventually found my way here to Cincinnati. So advice that you would give to a, you know, let's say a, a college senior thinking about going the law route? Uh, come talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, a t- it's a tough field. Nobody goes to law school thinking. Is that the diplomatic way of saying, don't do it? No, or... I don't know. I, I don't want to tell anybody not to follow their dream. I don't know if that's somebody's dream, but, um, you know, you have to be in the top 20% of your class to do certain things right. in law school, unfortunately, uh, which is kind of archaic and stupid in many ways. So, but nobody goes to law school thinking they're going to do poorly, right? Everybody goes thinking they're going to be in the top 20%. Right. Um, so that's 80% of the people that are then in a position not to right. necessarily get the job that they wanted. Right. Um, we're, we're probably producing too many lawyers in the U.S. Right. So would you, I guess, what's the sort of mindset that a someone in college right now should bring to it that makes them a good match for law school? 
uh, law, law school might be the only professional school where there's a direct correlation between the number of hours you spend in the library and your grades, huh. right? Um, I felt like an undergrad, you could you could have enough Finagle, smart. Yeah, you yeah. could figure out a grade right. without necessarily studying as hard. Um, that was not the case in law school, right. for me at least. Right. Because I mean, part of why I think, you know, people in Cincinnati and beyond find you very impressive is, you know, you're at one of the most prestigious, biggest law firms in the city, but that's just a sort of piece of the overall, um, you know, activities that you take on. Tell us, I guess, briefly for folks that uh, are not yet familiar, um, explain, you know, briefly what the what the brandery is and does. And then more importantly, I mean, guys, tell us the backstory of how you founded this, you know, nationally ranked accelerator here in Cincinnati. Sure. Yeah. So I, I'm actually a co-founder, not the, the I'm not trying to cut yeah, out the yeah, other yeah, guys, yeah. but okay, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't want to get in trouble with them. But, um, <laughs> so for me, I started at Taft when I first moved to Cincinnati in 2009. And um, over beers, I met Dave Knox and J.B. Crop, who um, are two of my co-founders. Um, at the Brandery, and then Brian Radke is the fourth. I feel like this is when I should have, like, you know, Rheingeist as a, uh, as a sponsor of keeping it PG, so that, you know, <laughs> all, all great ideas come over beer, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, those guys are great supporters of the startup community, right, too. Right. I mean, um, all the brewers are in town, really, right. which has been cool. But, um, yeah, so we had beers, and they had this, you know, idea of bringing an accelerator to Cincinnati. Accelerators already existed in the co- on the coasts. Um, so... Originally, we thought, why don't we bring one of those accelerators to Cincinnati? Of course, that was kind of a joke to the accelerators on the coast. Um, so the second idea was, well, why don't we start so one So calling up Y Combinator and saying, yeah. you know, launch in Cincinnati in 2009, 10, they, they weren't feeling it. Yeah, and that, and that actually, actually happened, not necessarily with Y Combinator, but I know Dave and JB both talked to Techstars right. at some point. And, um, you know, if nothing else, teach us, you know, how to do this was part of the idea. At the same time... A global accelerator network or TechStars network was opening, which was a network of accelerators. So we leaned on them for a little bit of education too. But um, largely, we just we just did it. Like it was, you know, let's start an accelerator. Let's get, you know, let's play to our strengths, which is consumer branding and marketing. Line up all the agencies we can in town to provide services to the companies. Um, bring in the, all the best partners we can. Um, so we have wonderful sponsors that have been with us since day one. And then just find go out and find high quality companies. Right. And uh, we, we were lucky enough to get some really really powerful and good conversations early on with Cincy Tech and with Hale Foundation, with P and G, Kroger, you know PNC, you know the sponsors that you would expect. And um, then we just hit the ground running and did it. I guess you're making it sound effortless. I know that a, a lot of hard work went in and continues to go into it. What, what was the sort of vision? I mean, did you all think, you know, the next Mark Zuckerberg, I only use him as sort of like stand-in for people's vision of a startup founder these days. But, you know, we were all thinking the next Mark Zuckerberg is somewhere in Cincinnati or could be um, sort of uplifted by coming to Cincinnati and going through this program? Or what was the thought at the... I, you know, I think that was part of it. I don't know if we were specifically targeting Mark Zuckerberg, but at the time we saw that high-quality tech can be built relatively cheaply now. Right. And there's high-quality talent in Cincinnati that's leaving. Right. So if we can marry those two concepts, we might be able to find some really nice companies here that could throw off a ton of jobs right. or potentially be acquired and generate great wealth for the region. Right. You know, those were the goals and right. still are the goals. Right. I was probably a little bit naive in my expectation about how easy that was. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, we've, we've proven that that is possible. Um, we've had some really nice exits. We've had a lot of jobs created. Right. Um, it's impressive to me how many of the companies are out there still thriving. 
Um, so we still have a lot of higher, hot irons in the fire. So you've done you know, a lot through the brandery and beyond. You've done a lot of coaching and mentoring and some lawyering for startups. If someone wants to, and I, I, I do sometimes wonder, you know, has the movie The Social Network done a disservice of people go, they see it, they suddenly have visions of nerds, you know, surrounded by hot girls at the party and, and, and that sort of thing. And they think, oh, I want to go and be a startup founder. So I, I know it's sort of, it's, it's very much in the, the cultural bloodstream right now. But if somebody, for good reasons, thinks, you know, I actually do think I, I want to be, you know, found a company. I'm sure it starts with the idea and solving a problem and identifying a pain point. But where does someone even sort of begin in yep. the process? Great question. I mean, there's... The great thing now about Cincinnati, which did not exist in 2009, was the community around startups. Right. So going to the brand new website, going to the Centrifuge website, you can find our calendars. Right. And there's tons of events now. Uh, Meetups.com has all kinds of events around the tech ecosystem. Too. Right. Um, so in the old days where you really didn't have a place to go if you wanted to start a, a business or start a startup, um, now we have too many places to go in right, some ways. Right. Um, so... Uh, one thing that always impresses me about really high-quality entrepreneurs is how much research and background they do, right. and reading they do. Um, so if you're going to those events, if you're doing your homework online, um, you're going to start to kind of piece together, how I, how should I do this? Right. And the other remarkable thing about Cincinnati's startup ecosystem is everybody will meet with you. Right. Um, most everybody in the startup ecosystem wants to be helpful, right. um, especially if you've done your homework. Um, so calling people or emailing people for coffees or just to get together for 15 minutes is something that... They'll get back to you. They'll get back to you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, this is true across, like, Cincinnati yeah, as, it a, is. as a, a whole. It's a great defining thing, yeah. right? The CEO of a, you know, Fortune 50 company might get back to you or... Yeah, it's 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 unique, I think. Yeah, I mean, at some point, when, um, not to, like, out anybody here, but, like... <laughs> Uh, at some point, when I first moved to town, I sent some emails to some, you know, what I consider to be very high-quality people. Yeah. And then suddenly, like, they were like, yeah, come meet me in my office. Like, really? Okay. Right, <laughs> right. Know? It's great. So psych- if someone decides, I'm going to take the leap, take the plunge, you know, I'm going to try and, and found and start a company, psychologically, where should their head be? Should they say, this is going to be the hardest, most grueling, most consuming thing I've ever done, or this is going to be fun, or is it not supposed to be fun? Or how would, What should their, their frame of mind be? I think it's all four of the things you just <laughs> said. The hardest, most grueling, most what was the right, last term? Right. And then fun. Right. There's definitely a lot of fun, um, but it's also extremely stressful. I think the defining term of entrepreneurship is uh, peaks and valleys. I mean, right. You're going to have really high highs, and, and you're also going to have severe lows. So if you like just daily steadiness, maybe not the right realm. It's probably to... not the right track for you. Right. Yeah. I mean, one, you know, some of our companies, one day they'll be on CNBC, and the next day um, they're going to get a cease and desist letter from <laughs> you know, some big company that's mad about what they're doing. Right, right. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult profession. Um, people find a lot of value in being their own boss or pursuing their own vision. Um, so if that is of interest, if that's one of your guiding lights, then maybe it is the right career for you. But the thing, and I've sort of found this in politics too, um, and I'm, I know this is true of being a, a, a founder of a company and being the CEO of a sort of small company is, you know, you're the CEO, but you're also the janitor. You're the, you know, you might be the CMO, but you're also your own secretary. I mean, they're Definitely. often, it's, you have to wear a bunch of hats. Oh, yeah. In most of the job descriptions that we post, we remind people that they have to change the toilet paper. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's right. at the brandery. So our, you know, our staff, that's part of the role. Right. Um, you know, you have to do everything. What advice have you found yourself 
giving to founders most often to help them succeed these last number of years? I feel like um, the best thing that I've been able to do with our founders is help them connect with other founders, right? right. And somebody has gone through what you're going through. It might not be me. If it is me, I'll talk, you know, I would love to talk you through that. But um, somebody here in Cincinnati now, you know, six years removed from when we started, has been through this exact experience. Right. And you need to talk to them and hopefully find somebody to commiserate with or to find somebody that is willing to lend in. So here. find sort of peer mentors if Absolutely. you want, right? Yeah. Right. Um, other things that we, we teach people is, you know, find the best people you can. Right. We're looking for teams that can execute this idea, right? right? And um, if you don't have subject matter expertise, if you haven't done your homework, if you haven't felt the, if you haven't done consumer research, I mean, these are things that are relatively cheap to do right. um, that are basic requirements for the business to be successful. During, during the <clears throat> very brief time uh, I was at Google in their London office, I, and I don't even know if they're still doing this today, but they were in a pretty big growth mode then. So they were saying, we're going to hire great people. And you sort of say, what position are you hiring for? They're like, that, we'll figure that out. You know, throw great people in, in a hat and good things will come of it. So I, again, I don't know if that's still uh, a technique they're implementing, but I thought it was interesting at the time, kind of ballsy. Yeah, I mean, I wish we had like the, the financial wherewithal to be able to hire that, that way. But right. um, I think that is kind of what we do when we're picking companies at the brand. We're looking for really great people right. that have excellence in their history. Right. You know, so we've had a lot of former Army Rangers. We've had, you know, the, the runner-up from Survivor yeah. uh, TV show. Yeah. We've had a drummer from a platinum-selling rock band. You know, we love these people that have had excellent experiences. Right. Quirky, have already excelled in one different area. Right. What do you? What mistakes do you find yourself trying to head founders off most of, or what are the most commons one you see making that could be avoidable? Oh gosh, I. Was, um, <laughs> are we going to need a separate podcast? No, 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 no. It's frankly, I can't think of any like glaring mistakes that really? that all companies seem to make that are like uh, repetitive. Every company seems to make different mistakes. Right. Um, I guess there, there is a lot of, one, one would be a lot of companies are very focused on releasing the perfect product. Right. And, and really in this space, you have to release a product because you're going to get more and more insight as that product is used. Right. Um, so waiting too long to launch that product is something we see happen frequently. Right. Um, that would probably be the number one. That Anything in terms of team chemistry that you see... Yeah, team chemistry is a tough one. You know, we've learned that's probably the one space I've learned the most in by doing this right. uh, stuff. Is we really look for com uh, founders that are competitive, but we won't, don't want them to be competitive with each other. We want them to be competitive amongst themselves or amongst the team, right? Um, because we want them to be collaborative, right? So. People that don't see it as is your some game, our startup can be successful and your startup can be successful. Right. It doesn't need to be just because you guys raise money, <clears throat> we're pissed off and we're upset. You know that that trait in founders is a very big negative. To right. Me. So I sort of appreciate. Here. Actually, one, one more question on the the advice um, standpoint. You've been uh, publishing great pieces. Which give tell people how they can find them. But oh, your cool. LinkedIn yeah. posts. Uh, one of them recently was about advice for people on the investor side. You want to highlight a couple of the things that you said there? Sure, yeah. I, so and, to, and, and let our listeners know where they can find that piece. Yeah, too. so just on my LinkedIn, I, I guess if you just search Robert McDonald on LinkedIn, you can, you right. can find them. But I just, so I've only done two. I just started publishing. They made a big blogs. impression on me. Thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah. No, they were great, really. Yeah. I, I'm trying to write a little bit more because it's something I enjoy doing. And I feel like I've, I have a little bit of advice now that I'd like to share. On that space, on that particular piece, we were writing about... Um, advice to people that are looking to invest in companies. Right. And 
shocking to me is how little research people do on this sometimes. And in particular, we have companies that we've worked with or that we've met through the ecosystem that um, sometimes I don't necessarily believe in what they're doing or, um, you know, I don't necessarily believe in the founder. And, you know, especially once they've gone through the brand new program, I'm always surprised that people don't call us and ask, like, hey, how'd they do in Who the program? Should we, yeah, yeah. yeah, or like, hey, what'd you think <clears throat> of this company? It's like, I'd be willing to tell you the story about how this happened, which is why you shouldn't probably not invest right. in that particular company. So just basic due diligence. Basic due diligence, right. yeah. And on the tech side, you know, a lot of investors don't have technical backgrounds. It's like, have you thought about asking somebody to look at the code? Right. Um, it's surprising how pretty people can make something look that might not have any real substance behind it. Right. So um, I think it's pretty easy it's to true find. in politics, too. <laughs> Funny yeah, you mention. <laughs> <laughs> Lipstick on a pig. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you know that a little better than I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I've had some exposure to politics uh, recently, and it's, it's a tough sphere. <laughs> any, any other advice for folks on the investor side? Uh, they, really, they, they should you know, go to Robert McDonald on LinkedIn and read the yeah. piece for yourself. But yeah, it's a short read. It's like five minutes. But I, I think one other thing is just know what you want your role to be. Right. It, is the expectation that you're going to be working with this company on a daily basis? Or is the expectation going to be that you're going to be a passive investor? Right. That needs to be pretty clear. In case there's a, a mismatch of expectation. And that happens. Yeah. And that's where conflict happens. Right, right. You don't want me calling you every day exactly. now that you've got some of my money? Right. So one more question on the startup front. I mean, you know, your co-founding of the brandery has obviously um, been part of the transformation of Cincinnati's innovation ecosystem and the sort of just the culture of entrepreneurship here. How far, and I appreciated hearing you say, you know, the sort of from some of the coastal accelerators and, and tech startup scene, what their attitude was towards Cincinnati seven years ago. I'm sure we've started to reshape that um, at least a little bit, probably more than a little bit. How far can we take this? I mean, you know, can, can Cincinnati be, I don't know how to qualify it, you know, the Silicon Valley of the Midwest? Can we be the Silicon Valley period? Can, how far can our, can our scene go? Yeah, I think I think so. We're on the right track. I don't know if we'll ever be Silicon Valley. I don't know if that should even be the goal. But right. um, I think we can be the best ecosystem for startups in the Midwest. Right. Right. And uh, at one point, the Brandy was the maybe the only accelerator in the Midwest on the top ten accelerator right. list outside of Chicago. Right. Um, so that should always be our goal. Um, I get. I get. Um, competitive, like zero sum. We style. want you to be competitive. Yeah. When <clears throat> when I see Pittsburgh you know, Nashville, other St. Louis, other surrounding ecosystems doing well in the startup ecosystem, I think we should, we have a right to win there. Right. Um, so if we continue down this track, I think we're going to get there. Right. Things that we continue to need is uh, more, more capital, obviously, um, more competitive capital. So we have a lot of capital sources, but it'd be nice to have a diversity of capital. Sometimes the way it functions now is if one fund doesn't like you in town, right. pretty much you're written off with some of the others. Right. Um, that shouldn't be the case necessarily. Investors invest in different things. Right. We need some exits. Um, we're starting to find that we have these lions, um, startup founders that are now starting to become available that have this ex- incredible background and experience that they can share with others. Uh, folks like Charlie Key and Chris Bergman and things right. like that. Um, we need more of those people. Right. Um, and we need more diversity, I think, too. And we're working pretty hard on that. And the ecosystem as a whole is working a little bit harder on that. Um, Especially here, I I think this is a problem in every ecosystem, but we believe that innovation will come from diversity of ideas. Right. Diversity of ideas will come from diversity of backgrounds. Well Um, said. So we really need to find more diverse founders. Right. And something that, you know, I think 
the and this is also true of politics, but a lot of white guys in, in politics, older white guys in uh, tech and startup scene, younger white guys, but you know they're obviously the next. You know, whoever, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, name your, you know, the Airbnb guys, you know, they're going to look of all shapes, stripes, sizes, colors, backgrounds, so we tapping that talent. So. Right? Yeah, I mean, so you, you've worked on this in your role on city council, but, you know, Iron Yard coming to town, which right. is a code, a, a code school, I mean, that is the gateway to, to um, future wealth right. in this ecosystem. You know, if you can go to a code school, which is not necessarily a degree program, learn how to code you then are the competitive with, you know, all of these super hireable. Yeah. Exactly. And your earning capacity goes up substantially. So having access to code schools will hopefully bring new people to the table, right. not just all of the white guys like you and me. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, so Peter Thiel has been in the news recently for his, you know, the sort of Gawker Hulk Hogan controversy. But, um, I think that the sort of unofficial mantra, I might be paraphrasing a little bit for his fund or for his firm is, you know, we were promised flying cars and instead we got 140 characters. So I guess one of my questions for you is it seems like there is no shortage of very talented, very smart people saying, how can we create the next app that helps someone hook up with someone 100 yards away from them <laughs> at lunchtime? I mean, that sort of thing. How do we make sure that the best and the brightest and people with this incredible technical talent and creativity are taking on the biggest problems? That, that you know, how do we make sure that you know the next Steve Jobs or who I, I keep citing right. the, the common sort of most commonly known um, successful startup founders, but are channeling their talents toward the society's most pressing issues? That's a great. Or is question. that an unfair expectation for the startup community? I think it is a little unfair. I mean, um, I mean, we don't have a company necessarily creating the next Tinder, like right. the app you cited. But um, one thing that always shocks me is when we look back at history at how innovation has happened, it has never been a direct line. So I think of like the 1900s where the biggest problem in cities was the buildup of horse manure. Right. Right. And that was causing disease. It we was, fixed that pretty well in yeah, Cincinnati exactly. at this point. But, but the innovation, like the problems around innovating around horse manure was like, okay, let's create a better bulldozer or better shovel to get rid of this horse maneuver. It wasn't, let's create the car. Right, right, right. So I think Peter Thiel's quote is right on, which is innovation to solve problems is not necessarily going to be that direct line. Right. And um, so if we are funding startups, if we have a healthy ecosystem, that innovation should be applicable to big problems. Right. Um, and that's where my optimism is, which is we will, we as a human race will find technologies right. that fix some of these problems. Right. Um, it's amazing how simple some of them are too. Yeah. I sometimes think about these incredible, the, the technologies and the sophistication behind things that actually help you do really simple things. Get from A to B more quickly and more cheaply. Find someone you might want to date. Get to a restaurant. That it's almost like the simplicity of the thing it's solving is much less complex than the actual application and the technology. It's just sort of interesting that these are the problems that these keep solving are sort of age-old problems in a way. Yeah, I think so most of these problems don't change, right? Right. Like, so Human beings want food, sex, yeah. you know, easy logistics in their life. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, when I was living in New York, one of the quotes was, anybody in New York, at, any, all people in New York at any given time are trying to do one of three things. Find a new house, find a new mate, or find a new job. Right. Right. And right. I think that's not necessarily as true across the country, but it's, you know, at some point those are the important those things. Those probably won't stop being true. Yeah. yeah. The thing that my girlfriend and I, you know, find, we don't, we largely don't fight that much, but some of the stuff we do fight on is... My like, wife and I can teach you how. <laughs> <Yeah. if you're. laughs> 
<laughs> but we're, every night we're like, oh, what should we do for dinner? And that inevitably turns into a fight sometimes, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, can we just have an app that, you know, and there's like probably a million apps that are trying right. to solve that particular problem. Right. Um, but yeah, that would that would eliminate a lot of stress. Yeah, in the basics. Yeah. And this does not have to be someone that folks have necessarily heard of, or it can be. But um, founder that you most admire? Uh, I can't pick that. That's that's going to get me in trouble. <laughs> that's okay. Very yeah. smart. Yeah, we have some really great founders in town. Um, I, I'll just can I just rattle off some? Yeah, yeah, like, that'd be great. Uh, Charlie Key, Chris Bergman, who I've mentioned, James Fisher, uh, Tatiana, um, who's James's wife, uh, Natasha from Wiser. I'm t- I'm tending to focus on just our CEOs here. Right. But, um, we have so many wonderful talents in the startup ecosystem here. Um, that that's again where the optimism for me comes from. Right. Right. Well, and and honestly, I mean, you deserve huge kudos for creating an environment, creating an entity that is a magnet for that talent or a retention tool for that talent. So. Well, I appreciate it. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people working on it. And my co-founders, our, our team at the Brandery, Tony Alexander, right. another founder who I have a ton of respect for, are you know people that are all working on this together. The city has been helpful. The corporate community has been helpful. The agencies the, that we work with, I mean, we Brandery wouldn't exist without them. Right. So turning away from startup stuff for a minute, um, your father, Bob McDonald, is the current secretary for Veterans Affairs. I guess talk both about, you know, what's that like, uh, having your dad in that position, and then also has watching him sort of up close in that role, um, has it changed your own sort of attitude or perspective on government, especially at the, at the federal level? Yeah, it's, it's been incredibly, uh, it's been incredibly frustrating at times, but... <laughs> Um, you know, my dad is really driven by the mission. Everything that he does, eats, sleeps, you know, works on is trying to help um, veterans. Right. And, um, so to him, it's the most admirable mission in the world. Right. And, and uh, most folks probably know this, but your father also served the country right. uh, before yeah. he was, you know, went to Procter & Gamble and then now is the head of the VA. Right. And, you know, so he, yeah, so he was at West Point and then, you know, served in the Army, went to Ranger School, completed Ranger School, and then um, was really... Um, drawn to Cincinnati by Procter & Gamble and the mission of Procter & Gamble. Um, But yeah, the VA itself um, is such a great resource for our veterans. You know, we made a promise as a country to provide our veterans with health care. And, you know, unfortunately, we haven't lived up to that promise. And, um, you know, my father's job is to fix that. And he's got a great team now. It's just about the hardest job description in the world. I mean, I, I honestly have admiration just for his... You know, he, he didn't need to do this. So as you said, it's completely a sense of mission, but such a daunting challenge and, and especially the way everything was being covered in the news. I mean, it, he was walking into a tough situation. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I have several frustrations um, on his behalf. I mean, he right. would not air these out the way that I will. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the way that we should provide health care to veterans is, all right, how many veterans do we have? How old are they? What are the problems we foresee them encountering in the next 10 to 20 years? Okay, now here's the budget we need to build these hospitals for these veterans, to hire the staff that we need for these veterans, to do the research that we need to provide this kind of care. That's not how we do things now. Right. The way we do things now is Congress passes a budget, they look at the prior year's budget, and they decide how much money the VA should use to provide that health care. That's, that's not how you provide a high-quality right. product. Um, and then there's some other things that will compound that. You know, we think about, when I think of veterans, I think of veterans of our era. Right. I think of, um, you know, the, the Iraq war vets, the Afghanistan war vets. But um, really, right now, the VA is um, struggling providing care to the Vietnam era right. war vets. Right. Because 
you know, those are the baby boomers who are now hitting an age where health is a problem, right? Um, because they're, you know, they've been exposed to some, you know, some poor, some bad things abroad. And uh, now they're hitting that age where those, those illnesses are becoming more prevalent. Um, so it's, uh, it's difficult because, uh, you know, we did not ramp up spending on the, for the VA right. when these people came back, right. right? And when we go to war, we don't necessarily ramp up spending on the, at the VA. Right. So um, the, I, I have supreme confidence that the VA is going to be in a much better spot than it was when my father took right. it. Um, that said, it's going to take some time. What surprised you most watching him in that role? Um, probably the, the, the media. Right. Um, it's, especially in a presidential election year, it's surprising um, how the media reacts to things. Right. And unfortunately, it is this, you know, you know, this BuzzFeed era where people are trying to grab headlines. Right. Um, clickbait. Clickbait, exactly. And uh, so he's made some comments that people, you know, just have blown up about. But when you go back and you look at the whole transcript, you, you understand what the point was. Uh, one that that is most cited, which I'll get, get into and defend him a little bit on, is he said uh, that the VA needs to be a little bit more like Disney, which turned into a headline about how he compared wait times to Disneyland, right. which was not the point, right? right. The point is uh, wait times is a critical metric for the VA, right? That's the probably the most important metric, and that's, of course, the one that's the most reported right. on. That said, patient satisfaction should be the most critical me- metric, not wait times. Right. Wait times is not necessarily a good metric because it's a binary. It's a it's a you know it's a bell curve. If you look at a bell curve, there's going to be veterans that get care immediately because their condition dictates it, and then there's going to be veterans that have longer tail experiences because of whatever reason, um, whether it's the VA fault or whether there's paperwork missing or whether they're appealing something, whatever it is. That said, the vast majority of veterans are satisfied with their experience at the VA. Um, and really what we care about is their holistic experience. We right. don't care necessarily about um, the wait time because for one vet, it might not matter if they waited two weeks. For another vet, it obviously is going to matter, yeah, right? Right. So um, that was the point, moving the VA into not just one metric. It should not just be wait times. It needs to be patient satisfaction. It right. should be doctor performance. It should be um, you know caregiver performance. It should be um, attachment you know, with the, the particular VA. So... These are things that they're trying to move towards, um, I, I believe, um, that I think will help improve the entire satisfaction experience. And this is what other hospitals do too, right? right. It's, um, but the media has really focused on that one metric. Right. And historically, it made sense because it was the, where the issue was. Tell me if I'm misremembering this a little bit, but in terms of the politics, and you know, I've met your father a couple times, and it's very clear there's such a sense of sort of honor and duty and mission. Um, I remember one moment, I think I remember correctly, where some senator or congressman who'd been around for a long time was saying, you know, why haven't you fixed this or this? And I think your father responded, you know, sir, you've been sitting around in Congress for whatever, 20 years or 50 years. What have you done for it? I'm here trying to clean this up. What has been your sort of observation just of like seeing seeing your father, Secretary McDonald, in such an important role in you know, what the, the political atmosphere is at this moment. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. I think um, I've having exposure to D.C. now, I've seen that there's there's a lot of people in D.C. that care a lot, that are really driven by the same mission that my father is driven by. Um, and then there's other people that are not driven by the mission, right? <laughs> right. They're driven by their own mission. Right. And their own uh, well-being. And um, not necessarily specific, talk, talking about that specific congressman. Right. But... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, I think we, 
it's been really difficult to see how we treat our public servants. And, um, you know, I, I'm a Republican historically, and uh, President Obama is not who I voted for. But, right. you know, we've interacted with him a little bit and seeing how the press treats things that he says, right. Right? seeing how the press treats the things that Rob Portman says, right. you know, and the, how they treat you, PG. Right. Uh, it's, 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 um, we need to get away from it. It's, yeah. it's, uh, I don't it's know really bad for the country. Yeah, it is. It's it's a it's such an intractable problem where what's good for business models and what's good for clicks isn't necessarily good for the country. And I'm a big believer in you know having a healthy, robust fourth estate, having a media that holds people accountable. But I think it it does a lot of damage in the process of trying to do some good and play that sort of public accountability role. I completely agree. I think a lot of um, there's been cases where people have gotten forced out of office or forced out of roles at companies because of a comment that they've made that's been taken out of context. Right. And that, in the long term, is not Because it made for a salacious headline. Exactly, right. yeah. Right. And, uh, and that, unfortunately, is not going to get us where we need to go. I look at some of these examples, and I'm like, who did you want to replace that person? Right. Because yeah, exactly. that's the best option we had. Right. You know? yeah. and, um, and unfortunately, there's you know, our bench of talent that are willing to take on those types of roles now is getting slimmer and slimmer. There's such, I mean, I think about this largely through politics because it's, it's sort of what I know better, but there is such a chilling effect of so many people that would be a great councilman, that would be a great senator, that would be a great president of the United States say, I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. You know, I want my life to be better than getting, you know, dragged through the mud or whatever it might be. Right. It I, comes with it. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, thank you for doing what you do. <laughs> I mean, it's the city council members, you know, the mayor... Putting, you're basically putting your family on, you know, on a public. There's pedestal. a little bit of hate that comes through Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> yeah, but it's, sure. it's nothing compared to what you know, a, a cabinet secretary. Or, with well, that being said, what advice would you give to a future cabinet secretary or a future cabinet secretary's, you know, child or spouse or? Uh, just grow some thick skin. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I probably get a, you know, a number of emails a day from people who are frustrated that need help or. You know, we try to do our best to funnel those to the right places. But, right. Um, you know, you have to have a thick skin. You have to be, you know, focused on the mission. We as a family are focused on the mission. This right. is not uh, just him being focused on the mission. Um, and we, you know, it's something we talk about. Is it, this something that the family is willing to take on? It's funny, you know, the taxpayers pay for these secretaries. The taxpayers pay for our public officials. But um, a lot of these public officials could make a lot more money doing something else. Right. Um, so... Uh, you know, I try to remind people that this is something that was a choice, and um, and I hope that people in the long term give him the opportunity to really uh, fix the fix all of these problems. Yeah. It's it's hard to move this ship. You know, it's a right. huge enterprise, and um, but I you know things are looking up. I, I've heard some of the, I've seen some of the numbers and talked through some of the numbers, and I'm really impressed with what they've done, and I and I continue to hold have high hopes for what they're going to be able to pull off in the next couple of years. Well, just to reciprocate, but times 100, you know, thanks to your whole family for the service that, that goes into, you know, trying to fix a problem that needs fixing. So. Uh, you, you're too kind. I mean, you live it every day and you're, and you're not, not, not like that. Okay. So we've covered a lot of ground before we get to our lightning round here. You've lived all over the world. Uh, you went to law school and are a partner at a great law firm. You founded this nationally ranked, co-founded this nationally ranked accelerator. Um, what's Rob McDonald going to be doing 15 years from now? Oh, gosh, great question. Will you finally crack the PGA Tour? <laughs> yeah. I, that's the dream job, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Um, no, I, I really like what I'm doing, and um, I really want to continue to foster the startup ecosystem here. Um, you know, like I said, with entrepreneurs, there's peaks and valleys. I think the last year for me has kind of been a personal valley in terms of um, some of our companies had encountered more struggle than we expected. Right. We expect them to kind of, this year we expect it's going to be a banner year, um, and those companies are going to thrive again. So, um, you know, we want to we prove this out, and, I, and we, we think we're on the right track. Right. Is there any sort of big, bold, possibly even a little bit zany idea that, you know, most people might say, nah, that you say, I'm bullish on that. I mean, I know, not to keep going back to Peter Thiel, but, you know, he wants to ex- greatly expand people's sort of life expectancies or, you know, commercializing space travel or things like that. Are, are, is there something that you think, watch out for that one? Uh, the one for me is, uh, like, that we have not gotten into is the interaction of machines and humans. Right. Um, so the, and people talk about this a little bit. So you have Siri on your phone. It's, um, what used to be the most important tool on my phone was Google because I was using it to search information. But the way that I'm going to be interacting with my phone and with my devices in five years is going to be, um, hey, phone, you know, how do I get here? What do I yeah. do here? I don't need Google anymore. I just need the device to tell me what to do. Right. And long term, I'll be interacting with that directly, probably not even verbally or via text. It will right. just be via biosymmetry. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so that's what I'm kind of excited about. Um, I'm excited about. This. I think Rob just announced his future as a cyborg. If <laughs> yeah. I if I understood that correctly, <laughs> I'm really excited about um, the uh, intellectual smart cars. Right. Um, totally. We have interacted in this space a little bit. Um, you know, our a lot of our public infrastructure problems are going to be solved by smart cars. Right. I think that cars will possibly turn into more of a commodity. Um, and you know, our cars are only used like two or two to five percent of the time that we own it. If we are making these cars smart enough, they can be operating 100% of the time. Right. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see how that changes cities. Just let me know what date I'll be able to say, you know, Siri, please do the dishes and then go walk my dog for me. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, you're going to need a little help with that one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll, we will wrap up here with a lightning round. So favorite place in Cincinnati? My house. Oh, Being right. home. Yeah. Um, favorite place outside of Cincinnati? Uh, Bali. Beach. Any beach. All yeah. Right. Beach. Um, song or singer that you're most embarrassed that you just love rocking out and jamming to? Uh, probably hip hop like Jay Z. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna have to get yeah. a video of that too. Rob, yeah, Ron McDonald, you know, fist pumping to Jay Z. My 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 rapping's terrible. <laughs> um, if you could have dinner with one historical figure, who would it be? Oh, I I gosh, um, probably Abraham Lincoln. Abe Lincoln. Yeah. I think you can't go wrong with that. Yeah. Good dinner company too. Uh, smartphone app you can't live without. Hub. Uh, it's a it's a app I use with my girlfriend so that we can track our calendars and put grocery lists together and things like that. It right. solves a lot of relationship problems. <laughs> I will look into it. I didn't know that that one was out there. Uh, and then finally, if you could either be the CEO of Facebook, you could tell I have a Mark Zuckerberg crush from this podcast. Yeah. I know. So if you could either be the CEO of Facebook for a day or uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for a day, which one would you go for and why? I think I would take Zuck, um, yeah. just because I don't think I'm smart enough to be the Chief Justice <laughs> of the United States. The problems that they encounter are just crazy. And I think Facebook is going to dramatically change um, the way that we live our lives, um, in a, hopefully in a very positive way. I think Facebook is just scratching the surface of what they're doing right now. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how Facebook continues to grow. We'll give Zuck a call, see if he's up for a little swap for a day. Yeah, I don't think he's going to hire me. (laughs) (laughs) Rob, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks for all that you do in city council. And um, 
we're eager to continue to support you over there at City Council. I appreciate it very much. That will do it for today's episode of Keeping It PG. You can find our podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can also keep up with me on Twitter. My handle's at PG Sittenfeld. Rob, your handle out there? Uh, RWM. RWM. All right, thanks everyone for listening today. Catch you next time.